Hello, hello, hello. Good morning, good night, and good afternoon, and welcome back to another episode of Diasporic Children of Indenture with me, Alex Bacchus, and I use they, them pronouns. You can follow us on Instagram at Diasporic Children of Indenture, and whether you be on Instagram or one of our streaming services, Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or Anchor.fm, make sure you subscribe or whatever it's called, turn on your notifications on Instagram, your streaming services, to make sure you're the first to know when our new episodes come out. And don't forget to take a peek at the web page of our Digital Humanities site. The website or the link to the website is found in the bio of our Instagram page. You can find that all at Diasporic Children of Indenture. I am very excited and enthusiastic about today's episode or this series. Episodes 9A, B, and C, I guess three parts of one episode, however you want to look at it. This is a writer's roundtable, but not any writer's roundtable. I'm bringing together five different indentured descendant writers in various diasporas stretched across two continents to come together to discuss literature, to discuss their writing, to discuss their identities and the experience they hold, the experiences they hold. And they're also going to give us a little reading which is really incredibly special. I am very grateful for these talented writers setting aside the time and being part of this recording and this this project in general. Like every episode, I ask that you remember the fluidity of identities. Not every person's going to have the same experience and not all people are speaking for the entire culture, for their entire ethnic identity, for their entire nationality. Everyone's experience is unique to them. And identity is shaped by a number of factors in life, and many of them are uncontrollable. Some people's experiences you might relate with, and others you might not, and that's the beauty of identity. And just because an experience might be different, or somebody might not agree, or you might not agree with something, that does not mean that somebody is being incorrectly brown or inauthentically their identity, whatever X identity may be. It's not a question of authenticity. It's a question of what can we learn by stepping into somebody else's shoes? What can we learn from another person about their experience and about their identity? And how can we nuance our understandings of the world and grow our knowledge and understandings of various indentured descendant diasporas? That is our mission here. That is our journey. Today, we're in conversation with five different writers representing diverse indentured descendant identities who find themselves in several different diasporas situated on two different continents. Some of our guests I'm sure you'll recognize from their works receiving a lot of publicity, but some of our guests you may also recognize from previous episodes, and I'm sure you'll recognize them again with episodes to come in the near future. Make sure you're subscribed, make sure your notifications are turned on, make sure you're following so you're the first to find out who's going to be chatting with us next time. 
Today, we're going to be chatting with Karima Rahman, Kamala Makarel, Rajiv Mahabir, Ryan Persady, and Sila Arjusimitu J2. Karima Rahman is the founder of the Muslim Indo Caribbean Collective, the MICC, and the Muslim Indentureship Studies Center. Karima self identifies as Muslim Indo Caribbean and a descendant of indentured laborers from Trinidad and Guyana. She was born in Jojage, Quebec, Canada, which is colonially known as Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and she currently lives in Toronto, which is colonially known as Toronto, Ontario. She is pursuing her PhD in policy studies focused on the intersectional marginalization, lack of representation, and anti-Muslim racism towards Muslim Indo-Caribbeans and marginalization of Indo-Caribbeans in policy such as India's Diaspora Policy and Ontario's 2001 South Asian Heritage Act, as well as Indo-Caribbean indentured diasporic Indian and South Asian spaces. Karima looks at the legacy of Muslim Indo-Caribbean resistance to colonization, journey of learning and unlearning, intergenerational trauma rooted in indentureship, colonization, white supremacy, Hindu supremacy, Hindutva ideology, Brahmin supremacy, etc., and decolonizing, including decolonizing mental health. Karima is a published author with work ranging from academic to spoken words, and she's given talks, interviews, and workshops on the topics mentioned earlier. She is currently working on a documentary movie and upcoming book on being Muslim Indo-Caribbean made by Muslim Indo-Caribbeans for Muslim Indo-Caribbeans. Kamala Makarel is an award-winning Mauritian-Canadian multidisciplinary artist, educator, writer, curator, and literary translator who works within and across performance, photography, installations, textiles, digital art, and literature. Kama's work is grounded in the exploration of justice, love, healing, decoloniality, hybridity, cosmopolitanism, ancestral healing, and self and collective empowerment. They believe that aesthetic practices have the power to build resilience and act as resistance to the status quo, thereby enacting in anti-colonial praxis through cultural production. They are the author of Zon Femme from Mentonymy Press, which has been named a CBC Best Poetry Book, a Globe and Mail Best Debut, and was a finalist for the QWF Concordia University First Book Award and the Writers' Trust of Canada Dane Ogilvy Prize. World Literature Today called Zone Femme a milestone in Mauritian literature. Kama has exhibited, performed, and lectured internationally and has published in English, French, and Mauritian Creole. In 2021, Kama was awarded the Canada Council for the Arts Joseph S. Stouffer Prize for Emerging and Mid-Career Artist in Visual Arts. In fall 2021, they performed their new multimedia exhibition, Queering, the island body as part of Momenta Biennale de l'Image and their performance Le Monde, Ce qui pas which was presented at the Montréal Museum of Fine Arts as part of Afflux Biennale Transnationale Loire. You can learn more about Kama at lamacrel.net or lamacrel, L-A-M-A-C-K-E-R-E-L.net. And you can follow them on Instagram at Kamala Macarel.
And now moving on, selected by Brenda Shaughnessy for the 2014 Inter Prize in Poetry by Four Way Books for his book entitled The Taxidermist's Cut from Spring 2016, Rajiv Mahabir's first collection is a finalist for the 2017 Lambda Literary Award in Gay Poetry. He received fellowships from Voices of Our Nation's Artist Foundation, Kundiman, The Home School, where he was a Kundiman Fellow, and the American Institute of Indian Studies Language Program. His second manuscript, The Cowherd Son, won the 2015 Kundiman Prize to Pelo Press in May 2017. 2021 saw the release of Mahabir's poetry collection, Kutlish, from Four Way Books, and he was also awarded the Harold Morton Landon Translation Award from the Academy of American Poets and a 2015 Penheim Translation Fund grant for his translation of Lal Bihari Sharma's I Even Regret Night, Holy Songs of the Demerara from Kaya Press 2019, which was originally published in 1916. In 2019, Rajiv Mahabir also received the New Immigrant Writing Award from Restless Books for his memoir Antiman, selected by Terry Hong, Hector Tovar, and Ilan Stavan from Restless Books in 2021. With Kazim Ali, Mahabir edited the Global Anglophone Indian Folio for Poetry Magazine in 2019. His poem Ancestor was chosen by Philip Mitre for the 2015 AWP Intro Journal Award. His poems also received the 2015 Editor's Choice Award from Bamboo Ridge Journal and the 2014 Academy of American Poets Prize for the University of Hawaii. His poem Dove appears in Best American Poetry 2015. Other poems in translation appear in journals such as Quarterly West, Guernica, The Collegist, The Journal, Prairie Schooner, Crab Orchard Review, Drunken Boat, Small Axe, The Asian American Literary Review, Great River Review, and Pank. He has received several Pushcart Prize and Best of Net nominations. Winner of the inaugural Chapbook Prize by Ghostbird Press for Acoustic Trauma, he is the author of three other multi multilingual chapbooks, including Thunder in the Courtyard Kajari Poems, a veil you'll cast aside, na mash me bon, and na barai me. In 2021, he collaborated with Awatearoa-based poet Rushi Vyas to write between us, not half a saint. Rajiv holds a BA from the University of Florida in Religious Studies, an MSED in Teaching English to Speakers of Other Languages from Long Island University, Brooklyn, and an MFA in Poetry and Literary Translation from Queens College, CUNY, where he was Editor-in-Chief of Ozone Park Literary Journal. While in New York, working as a public school teacher, Rajiv also produced the nationally broadcast radio show Kavi House on Just Punjabi. He received his PhD in English from the University of Hawaii and is currently translations editor at Waxing Journal and teaches in the BFA MFA program in the Writing, Literature and Publishing Department at Emerson College in Boston. Ryan Persady, also known by the stage name Tiff Hawaiian, is an artist, educator, performer, and researcher based in Toronto, Canada. His aesthetics and scholarly work 
interrogates the relationships and the entanglements between queer Indo-Caribbean diasporas, Caribbean feminisms, Afro-Asian intimacies, legacies of indenture, performance, embodiment, and popular culture. His writing can be found in the Stabrook News, A Color Deep, Gay City News, and Music Cultures. He also works with and organizes with multiple community groups, including the Caribbean Equality Project and Caribbean Toronto. Outside of academia, he also works as a drag artist where he goes by the stage name of Tifawine. In this capacity, he uses embodied archives of song, dance, comedy, gesture, makeup, storytelling, and fashion to pursue calls of decolonial and feminist pedagogy. He has also performed across the Greater Toronto Area and internationally and works across mediums of live performance, video, and photography. And last, but most certainly not least, Sila Arjusamitu Jaitu is an anthropologist and sociologist. She has spent the past 20 years working in the field of diversity inclusion with equity as its foundation. She started within welfare and social work and later on switched to higher education and the public sector at the level of national and local government. On the 1st of June 2021, she started as the Diversity and Inclusion Officer at the University of the Arts in The Hague. She also runs her own company, Connecting the Dots Unlimited, where she provides training, coaching and advice and she works as a word artist. She contributed to several publications such as Super Diverse, Os Begreven Erkvogot, and Diversiteit in the Samenleving. She's editor-in-chief of the latter. Furthermore, she writes a monthly column about diversity and inclusion at the Sernam House and is a columnist for Kulturbers. With her husband and children, she created the podcast Diversity in Czech, available on Spotify for you Dutch speakers, and she is jointly reasonable, excuse me, she is jointly responsible for the podcast Segmar Gevonvit. She is a supervisory board member for Maritz House, chairsperson for Lloyd's Company, and board member of Het Haag's House. You've all been waiting for enough time. Let's get on into it. But I think something really important for us to acknowledge, especially those of us who are settlers is uh, in, in the so-called new world, is that we live on land and we have uh, so many privileges and, and, uh, and uh, luxuries in our life that come from, uh, that exist because of the the oppression, the genocide, and the violence that were experienced by indigenous people. And our ancestors, in many cases, but not all, were taken to former indenture sites, which the, the or the land of these former indenture sites also belonged to uh, various indigenous peoples. And it's really important to our listeners that we consider the privileges that we have in our in our education, in our migration, the migrations of our families to use the tools that we have to use our voices to uplift indigenous voices to un to unlearn harmful colonial thought and to understand indigenous uh, the indigenous identities and and cultures, but also the struggles and the oppression experienced by indigenous people today, and that's something that we 
have to do in order to be, we have to be in solidarity with indigenous peoples, regardless of uh, where we are coming from, where we are today, especially if we're going to be on a decolonial journey in unpacking and understanding uh, our own colonial history and the colonial traumas that our ancestors experienced and maybe we're still experiencing today as well. And some of us are in the so-called new world, some of us are in the so-called old world at the heart of empire. But these are important things to reflect on today. Oh, we can get into it then. Okay, so I'm going to be asking you all a round of questions first. And uh, I guess I'm just going to go in the order of how you appear on my screen. So the first question is, how do you like to hear your names pronounced? Uh, would you like to start, Rajiv? Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Alex, for organizing this. What an honor to be with these folks around. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy to be here. And I love this question. Uh, you know, and it's a hard one because I think um, I am okay with my name kind of taking different incarnation, changing shape um, based on who's speaking to me and when. Um, I like my name to be pronounced Rajiv Mahabir. Um, but, you know, I because my name is spelled with an O, um, you know, and this is something that I actually write about. Uh, and it's easier to, to direct people to kind of, you know, my website where I am in the world by, by pronouncing it Mohabir. Um, so the, there's accent on the O so folks can find me a little bit easier. But yeah, I mean, I really, I, I really prefer Rajiv Mahabir. Thank you. Would you like to go next, Kama? Hi everyone. Also gratitude, grateful that I get to spend this this little time with with all of you. Um, I think it's it's it's. Uh, I love this question. Um, I, I would say Kamala Makrel would be how I like uh, my name to be pronounced. But I, I I'm with Kama, which is also my legal name. I think I'm extremely uh, flexible between my experience of coming from Mauritius, living in India, living in Anglophone Canada, and now in Francophone Canada, where I'm like, it's two syllables, say it however you want. Uh, but I feel La Macrelle, which is way more Creole and Mauritian, takes on different... Um, again, it's like it's so multilingual, right? Because I, I live in Quebec, which is French-speaking, where Macrelle as a word itself has like meaning within the old French and the Quebecois context. Um, it's pronounced a particular way in English, it's pronounced a particular way in French, and it's also pronounced a very particular way in Creole, which is how ideally... I like it to be pronounced, but also I, I think being multilingual and uh, occupying different cultural, linguistic and geographical spaces, like on the whole, I feel very flexible as to how the name is pronounced. Like I'm like, however it sounds right to you is typically what, what I tend to do. Thank you, merci. Would you like to go next, Karina? Uh, yes, so for me, I usually pronounce my name as Karima Rahman. Um, it's deeply rooted in my Muslim Indo-Caribbean identity. I don't pronounce it necessarily the way that you would stereotypically pronounce Arabic names if you are Arabic speaking. Um, but it is mixed with that Indo-Caribbean tinge because I do pronounce it as Karima instead of Karima. So I think it's important to embrace the fact that we do have multiple identities, multiple journeys, and it depends on which context 
and who were speaking with the way that they would pronounce their name. But I do like to honor my Muslim Indo-Caribbean identity by pronouncing it in the way that my parents would call me. And I would like to thank my ancestors if they could. Thank you. How about you, Ryan? Yeah, thank you. Um, again, thanks so much for having me here. It's so amazing to be in the space with all these fantastic um, cultural producers and writers and organizers. And so I'm super happy to be here. Uh, my name is pronounced, I guess, depending on the context that you see me in, I, I guess I have two different names. Um, my first name is Ryan Persadi. Um, and I guess my second name as a drag artist is Tifa Wine. Um, and yeah, so thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Would you like to go next, Sila? Yes, thank you uh, again also for having me. And uh, it's so nice to meet like uh, somewhat kindred spirits, I think, uh, or I'd like to think. <laughs> um, so my name is pronounced Sila Arjosamito Jetu. And um, actually, it was very short. It was Sila Jetu, which was uh, my maiden name. And then uh, I married into um, my husband's family and I chose uh, to use his name as well. And I think it also reflects back on our um, communal, uh, colonial history combined in this uh, name, uh, which is uh, an Indonesian name. And then Jetu is from Chetayu, which is a bird in the Ramayana, um, located where Sita was. So I think uh, that's quite interesting names together. The pronunciation, especially in the Netherlands, always kind of refers into, oh, this is too difficult for me to pronounce. And then I feel like sometimes I make a point out of it. Just do it phonetically and make sure that you're trying to be inclusive as is. So um, because inclusion always takes some work and then pronunciation of names also takes some work. And I kind of link it to my work as a diversity and inclusion officer in that sense. So, yeah, that's me. Thank you so much. I have to say, it's really magical having you all here in this space right now. And um, so I'm um, fangirling really hard, um, but you all are doing really important things with your work. And I hope that more and more people listening through this, this podcast who may not be familiar with your work or who will come to find this episode whenever they do, I hope that they can explore your work. But the next question is, where can people keep in touch with you, if applicable, or follow your work and your journey? Would you like to go first, Rajiv? Sure, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, people can find me on my website at www.rajivmohabir.com, um, you know, keeping in mind <laughs> the way that it's, uh, it's easier to think about that, uh, the O as kind of like the, 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 the locator for my work. Um, I'm also on um, several social media platforms. Um, you can search for me at Rajiv Mohabir. Thank you. How about you, Kama? Yeah, I also have a web website, which is lamacruel.net. Uh, and I am on pretty much all the social media platforms, not TikTok, but like the rest of them. Uh, at Kamala Macrell, so it's just my name, and uh, and also have a mailing list that I'm really bad at sending out. So I send about like one update per year. You can also sign up for that. There's a sign up sheet on link on my social media and on my website as well. Thank you, and Krima. Thank you for this question because I 
find that we have so much amazing voices in this space and i would really appreciate if those listening were able to follow the journeys of all of us because we're all doing such important work um for me i have my personal instagram at karima underscore underscore kr and i also have the muslim indo-caribbean collective micc that i founded and curate at muslim indo-caribbean collective on ig and as well, we have the website www.muslimindocribbingcollective.com where I'm also working on an upcoming documentary and book unpacking the question, what does being Muslim Indo-Caribbean mean to you? On the Muslim Indentorship Studies Center, MISC, I founded and curate. We have on Instagram at Muslim Indenture Studies Center and the website www.muslimindentorshipstudiescenter.com. My articles are published on the Brown Gal Diaries website, Caribbean Muslims website, the Migration Initiative website, and I also have my spoken words published in the book Woken Loud, a faith-based medley of Muslim poetry and spoken word, edited and curated by Leila Hansib, and short stories published in the books Two Time Removed, an anthology of Indo-Caribbean fiction, edited and curated by Tiara J. Chutkan, and Blooming Through Adversity, a collection of short stories curated by Tiffany Manbod. And those are some of the places where you could follow my work. Thank you. And you, Sila? Um, yeah, you can find me on uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, and, um, uh, and Facebook if you want. I don't use that as much anymore. Uh, and on my website, which is www.ctdu.org. Um, uh, which is uh, connecting the dots unlimited.org, which uh, which actually has links to uh, all of the platforms that I'm a part of. So that would be easy. But if you just type in my name in Google, I think you can find everything uh, that is on the social. So then you can get in contact if you want. Yeah. And if you speak Dutch, Sila also has a podcast of her own. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I like it that you keep on saying that it's true, but because it's Dutch, I don't promote it as much. But I'm uh, promoting we... it. I like promoting it. Thank you. So I do have a podcast with my uh, with my husband and with my two sons, uh, and the podcast has an English title. It's Diversity in Check. It's on Spotify, and if you Google it, and you can also find some um, uh, some imaging uh, on youtube i think uh, and we also have an instagram page with the same name uh, and it's on diversity and inclusion and how to talk about these subjects with your children so yes <laughs> thank you and you ryan yeah i have a couple of things um i have a because uh, i'm a researcher as well as um an artist i have i'm in the process right now of building an artist website so it's not up yet but my research website is up um on the platform academia.edu i think it's just academia.edu slash ryan prasadi um i'm also on twitter um facebook and instagram so my instagram is at tifa dot wine uh, my Twitter is at R.Y. Prasadi, and then my Facebook is just Ryan Prasadi. Okay, everyone, please get out your devices in the audience, and you know what to do. You type in those that, that information, and, and you go fangirl like me. Um, okay, so why don't we get into these questions, since uh, time is just rushing by, unfortunately. I wish we could just pause this and have like a whole physical round table and do maybe a luncheon with some like tea cakes and things. Um, 
This next question is, what terminology do you use to describe your identity? Are there terms you do not like? And how do you relate to the words India, Indian, Desi, and South Asian? And I also want to say something else for those listening, that, you know, we, identity exists in different ways for different people. People's lives are shaped by different experiences, and these also inform an identity. And at the same time, not any single one individual is a spokesperson for entire identity. So you might find that there are things that resonate with you, and uh, and maybe there are things that don't resonate with you. But at the same time, we can nuance our understandings of of different identities and different life experiences and people might hold more than one identity in for example the category of ethnicity or race or even nationality people might have multiple nationalities and we don't always have power over these uh, these 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 characteristics that just occur naturally in, in from from birth even and there's a lot that we can do to unpack our colonial understandings of the world but also learn the truths of different people from around the world but again the uh the next and from different uh from different indenture diasporas as well but again the question is what terminology do you like to use to describe your identity would you like to go first ryan sure um so i'm just gonna i'm just reminding myself of all the terms because you gave us a lot of terms here um, I would say the one that I use the most often, and I don't even know if you had this one in your list, but again, trigger warning, because uh, some people don't like this term, and it's loaded with violence, is I use coolie a lot, and I use Indo-Caribbean a lot. Um, that wasn't the term that necessarily my grandparents would have used. Um, my grandparents would have always referred to themselves, number one, as Trinidadians. Um, but number two, if they would pinpoint their ethnicity or their race, they would say East Indian. Um, and that was something, I guess, that's very kind of local to the Trinidadian context. Uh, the reason I don't use South Asian and I don't use Desi in particular, um, and there's a number of reasons I don't use those terms. Number one, I think that the term South Asian, again, was produced um, with with a, a mentality of, of what Indianness was or what brownness is in the diaspora that was constructed with the Indo, without the Indo-Caribbean in mind and without other sort of diasporic um, South Asian populations in mind. Um, it's also a term that has been very heterosexualized um, and often doesn't take into account queer and trans experiences of brownness or Indianness or South Asianness or whatever you want to call it. Um, and also because of the ways in which the Indo-Caribbean has been cast outside of the normative space of contemporary South Asia, both in historical times and in contemporary times, I don't think it uh, accurately and historically is able to account for the nuances of arrival, of Indian arrival, of South Asian arrival that happened in the Caribbean. Uh, you know, with my students, I teach courses at University of Toronto and I do research on Indo-Caribbean studies and legacies of indenture in the queer and trans context. Um, and I always tell my students that the framing or what we understand today as Indo-Caribbean um, begins um, in the departure of certain brown bodies from the from the subcontinent of South Asia, right? So Indo-Caribbeanness really begins on that sort of journey, right? And gets changed and adapted and remixed uh, 
through many sort of decades of 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 encounter with other communities in the Caribbean, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I just find particularly Desi that has a particular sort of subjectivity and cultural expression attached to it um, that I feel that Indo-Caribbeans, um, some Indo-Caribbeans may identify with, but I think for me, I also come, you know, it's important, I think, to, uh, to center our positions. I come from not a Hindu or Muslim background, but I actually come and I'm the descendant of um, of a group of Indians or Indo-Caribbeans or Kulis in San Fernando, Trinidad, that were actually converted to Christianity by the Canadian Presbyterian Church. So it's actually kind of, <laughs> it's kind of funny how now I'm also living in Canada because Canada has always kind of had their foot in the door in a lot of these countries, in particular in Trinidad and Guyana. Um, and so I'm also part of, of that genealogy. And I bring this up because I feel that growing up, I also was kind of removed from dominant mainstream's understandings of Indo-Caribbean culture, which are often attached to Hinduism. Um, and so, you know, like things like that, you know, get attached to mainstream Indo-Caribbean culture, like chutney. I didn't even know what chutney was until like my middle school or high school. Like that was like not something I would have heard of um, growing up. Whereas my grandparents and parents default, and sorry, aunts and uncles would have defaulted to things like reggae and dance hall and soca um and gospel and those sorts of things attached to this very creolized understanding of what indo-caribbean is meant to them um, and then again i think it's also important for us to note that the term indo-caribbean is also an academic term right that's not necessarily a term that is often used from people on the ground or people in the region or even our elders um and yeah so those are some things that I, I i would always center indo-caribbeanness oh one more thing sorry i'm talking way too much but one more thing is i also center indo-caribbeanness to also honor that we come out of a labor diaspora right um and so the language of coolie and the language of indo-caribbean are able to forefront those those sorts of legacies that i think south asian um and desi can't do as uh, in, a, in a, such a nuanced way thank you ryan would you like to go next sila yeah, sure. Thank you very much. So um, I actually use the terminology that my parents use. So they would say there's a Nami in the Sani, uh, which means that they're from Suriname and from um, uh, from a part of uh, or India, Hindustan. Uh, and I keep on using that, I think. And also I add to that, of course, being also born and raised in the Netherlands and in the upper part of the Netherlands in Friesland which makes me also Frisian and also Dutch uh, when I'm looking at my personal identity and depending on where I am and where it's necessary or unnecessary to come forward with either or uh, then I make my decision in how to actually um, come, come across from my identity kind of perspective. Um, I think it's very important because sometimes um, it's something that, that is used to define you in certain places uh, and also diminish your existence in, in, in other places, right? And I think um, I don't like it when people are trying to categorize me up front. Uh, so that's my personal perspective, also working, of course, in the field of diversity and inclusion then I think it's up to me to define myself in the space that I am, am and then I can use my own terms and my own, uh, on my own terms in that sense. So um, I don't use DC a lot because I don't feel like that I identify with DC as such because DC is also saying I am from a certain country. So I'm, I am from 
uh, a home country which would be India and I'm not from there. Um, I did live in Suriname so I feel more connected to Suriname because I did my uh, research there uh, when I was studying anthropology and um, therefore feel more connection to that part but also like my Aja so my, my grandfather is from India um, or was from India but I didn't get to know him so we have like a first generation coming from India to Suriname and then another first generation coming from Suriname to the Netherlands and then I am a first generation born and raised in the Netherlands so uh, so then the interconnectedness sometimes feel very, feels very close and sometimes it feels very far away from me um, since my day in my daily practice it means so many different things then I was thinking it was very interesting that Ryan uses the word cooling for himself which I uh, definitely do not because I feel like uh, our discussion especially in Suriname is very different and also our experience with the with the term is uh, is very different so I tend not to use it to define myself uh, or um, or others uh, from that same kind of diaspora so yes thank you Sila would you like to go next Kama Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, like what's been said, like, I think it's it's always a complex question. And for me, uh, what term I use, because like, you know, there's a part of me that feels like saying like, well, I use all of them and I like to use all of them, but it's always, uh, and more than that, right? Like more than what you, you mentioned, but it's always contextual again, according to the location uh, where I am. I think one of the questions that I think about a lot for, for myself is you know like in using whichever term like you know what what other part of me is being erased right because you know uh, let's say as ryan said earlier right like if using south asian you know potentially has uh, there's an erasure of queerness that happens there right like so if i at any given point i do not use desi either like that's probably the only term that i do not use because I feel it refers to a specific experience and a relationship to India that I do not have. Um, so I would say that's like the, the one term that I do not use. But also I think for me, there's something I have been increasingly using Indo-African or Afro-Indian as a term. Um, and, you know, that's for multiple reasons. Part of it is around like the erasure of islands, even within that thing that we call like, you know, the, the post-colonial studies or like, you know, like so much of this has been focused on the continents, right? Like so much of like, it's it's almost like I have to, to, to you, you know, like when we talk about Africa, we don't think of the islands that technically speaking, well, at least politically speaking, belong, right? Or part of the African continent, right? Like we don't, Mauritius is not where we go immediately if we're talking about the African continent. Um, so I think for me, there's in, in, in the terms that I use, like I think I try to honor the island them. I, parts of myself as much as possible i think i also you know like as with the title of my book zomfam which is like a creole word right like which loosely can be translated as transgender if you want but uh, i think part of what i do as well is bringing you know like bringing because i think for me however i tried in english or french languages 
there are no words actually in any of those colonial imperial languages that can actually capture my gendered experience which is why for me like zomfam is the, the the term for example where i'm the most at ease um but those those words do not English, in, in the the, the post colonial anglophone or francophone in my case context we're living in we don't do not necessarily have access to this vocabulary so so part of my work also as a poet as a writer is to also find what resonates true to me and then like name myself uh, you know around this um and the the other part the last part that i also wanted to mention for me is also cuz i am mixed race i'm black and brown in that sense and and i feel like you know when i was living in mauritius i it's something that i never had to question or even think about you know like within the interethnic interracial dynamics of mauritius and interreligious as well like you know like i was aware of this in terms of how i grew up and i didn't in many ways i wasn't conscious of my blackness nor was i conscious of my brownness then as an adult when i went to live in india i lived in india for 5 years like so for example i think that's the first time of my life going to india that i actually understood my own blackness in relationship to a brownness that i did not fit in and i think for me then within the use of all those terms there's always those questions right of like never being black enough never being brown enough right so then it's like where do i belong i think when when i moved to canada for the longest time i asked myself the question around the, like self what what i understood as dc or south asian and whether that was something that i was entitled to did could did i could i even have access to spaces that were framed as south asian spaces other than my that I had lived in India for 5 years you know like and so I think it's 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 always shifting in terms of that for me the terms that I use I think I always think of the question of which parts of me um are coming to light and which parts of me are coming or being erased at any present moment uh I I think generally speaking I'm somebody who is into either the you know like the 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 the, the putting forward uh, a lot of times creole terms you know like mauritian creole terms like zomfam that i feel like might capture how i feel about myself uh, better than any other terms that might be readily accessible um and the other part of me is just like i'm going to use as many as i need you know i'm going to be black i'm going to be brown i'm going to be an islander i'm going to be indian i'm going to be african you know i'm going to be queer i'm going to be trans i'm going to be femme i'm going to be all of it right like all of it just because then it also allows me to exist in multiplicity it allows me to exist in hybrid spaces um and and those are all multiple parts of me that are not neatly defined or categorized but i still want to celebrate that those multiple parts of of who i am thank you so much kama would you like to go next krima ah uh, yes of course um So there's a lot to think about when we're looking at these terms and I think a good part to talk about is context and where I grew up um has a big part to do with it and in the complexity of how I interpret these different terms. So I grew up in Canada, specifically Jojoge, colonially known as Canada Montreal. I now live in Toronto, colonially known as Toronto. And when I think of identity in these terms, I also look at the idea of what home means in these locations. So, more immediately, uh 
Toronto, uh, uh, basically the colonial term Toronto, Takaranto, um, is a place that became my home. I consider both Trinidad and Guyana equally my home. The land my ancestors were colonially displaced to as indentured laborers, and I consider the land my ancestors who were indentured called home my home as well, which is pre-partition colonized South Asia, mainly present-day India for me. So when I'm looking at these terms, um, the term that I actually do use is Muslim Indo-Caribbean. And I never saw this term used before, and I'm both Muslim as well as Indo-Caribbean. So I used that term when I started the Muslim Indo-Caribbean Collective, MICC, and now I see that it has popularized the term Muslim Indo-Caribbean since some others are using the term now too. Um, I did see my Muslim identity erased with the term Indo-Caribbean and how it was defined and represented around me. So adding Muslim in front allows me to have my identity more fully captured and my experiences more fully captured. Along with using Muslim Indo-Caribbean, I self-identify as both Muslim Indo-Caribbean as well as a descendant of Muslim indentured laborers. I am part of the indentured diaspora, specifically the Muslim indentured diaspora. So I self-identify as Caribbean, Indian, Muslim Indian, and also South Asian. And there are subcategories there like Indo-Caribbean, Indo-Guyanese, Muslim Caribbean, Muslim Indian, Muslim South Asian, uh, using the general terms Trinidadian, Guyanese. Uh, there's so many ways of uh, defining myself, but I do feel connection to the terms India, Indian, Desi, and South Asian. Yet, no term really fully captures my intersectional identity unless I say all simultaneously. And this is why I say I am belonging nowhere, yet unapologetically me, Muslim, Indo-Caribbean, and more, which is the name and title of my short story in the book, Blooming Through Adversity, a collection of short stories. So when I look at India, it does mean the world to me. As long as I can remember, I have always had a strong connection to my Indian heritage and identity growing up. I do view India as my homeland, where I have already traced some ancestors to, and at the same time, I do feel a connection to Trinidad, Guyana, the Caribbean. And by saying this, I'm not negating that experience and strong connection I have to the Caribbean. This is just another layer of my identity going further back, more further generations. Um, India is not something in my past my ancestors were displaced from solely linked to history that ends the moment they boarded those ships. Instead, it's a place that dwells in my heart and in my present. It's one of the multiple of my multiple homes and each time I practice and remember my culture and my religion, it is very much rooted in my Indian ancestry. Um, when I think of it, I see it as a view of act or an act of resistance against the colonization my ancestors endured from the evil white colonizers in the form of white supremacy and resistance against Arab supremacy and Hindu supremacy I face today. So I will never forget India, the land of my ancestors, whose descendants are still walking today. I do self-identify with, with Indian and I do feel a connection to the word Desi as well since I feel kinship and a pull towards those terms and communities that I do share a lot of similarities with, but I do want to acknowledge that words like these on identity can be weaponized. And it's weaponized in the way that it is defined, who could claim that space, who acts as a gatekeeper, how it's defined, who was represented in these spaces, who was oppressed in these spaces, how people are marginalized in these spaces. Uh, one of the examples is how um, Indian is weaponized in India among Muslims as well as other marginalized communities. Um, there, there are hierarchies created where those with the most power, privilege, gatekeep those identities such as who um, 
I coined as mainland South Asians, Indians, especially Hindus, who gatekeep these terms from more marginalized communities like the adventure diaspora, such as Indo-Caribbeans, especially Muslims, also acknowledging the way that uh, those who have other marginalized identities who fall within the umbrella of queer identities and also acknowledging that queer identities are so intersectional um, and we need to acknowledge even marginalization within the queer community and identities and how does asexual identities fall into this? How does gray, um, gray ace, other ace identities, because again, when we use the term asexual, that also is assuming that there's one way of interpreting that, where saying ace is more able to capture that diversity and, and unpacking that when we're looking at neurodiversity as well. Um, when you're considered neurodivergent, how do we look at how other neurodivergent identities such as having OCD falls into this category? How can we look at how um, other disabled identities are um, are captured with these terms and not captured with these terms and the nuances with it, the marginalization behind it? Uh, there's so many other ways we could look at how these terms marginalize, oppress, and also you do feel some form of connection to it at the same time. And it's important to talk about that complexity and that nuance because there's so much to say about this. And we need to look at how there are those hierarchies, how there is gatekeeping occurring, um, and how we need to constantly check ourselves and our privilege and our power and unpack that as we're using these terms and acknowledging not everyone will self-identify with these terms but if others don't self-identify with terms that we do we need to uh, be able to make space and make room for that and be able to unpack that together and not become the gatekeepers we are critiquing by saying that oh well you you can't self-identify with this if you're Indo-Caribbean or if you're part of the denture diaspora so it's just a lot that we need to be cognizant of sorry I took so much time no, thank you so much. That was that was said very well. Thank you, Karima. And how about you, Raji? Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, I I want to reflect or, or like kind of say ditto to a lot of what has been said already. Or you know, thinking about uh, you know these identities as and these identity markers as you know really rough and broad brush strokes that act as umbrella terms to locate ourselves in. For me, I think about, uh, you know, an identity as something that I can, like, I can pick up, um, you know, like a, a bundle of a bundle of cane, let's say. Each identity represents like a kind of cane and it depends on where I am. It's context specific. It's language specific. It's, you know, you know, even in the even in the United States, like even in Florida, it depends on where I am, who's around me, where I use these terms. And I've used all of these terms, both professionally and personally, in order to locate myself within a larger conversation. Um, and the thing that always, whenever I, whenever I identify myself, I always feel like it's a shorthand and it also erases another part of myself. And um, I believe Kamal was saying this uh, same thing, like never, never do I feel completely at home in any of these terms. Um, <clears throat> Indo-Caribbean also, you know, Ryan mentions that this is like an academic term. I didn't know the term Indo-Caribbean until I started reading books by people who, um, Frank uh, Birbal Singh, um, actually one of, the, one of the first people that I wrote or, or read where I was like, oh, Indo-Caribbean, oh, this is interesting. All of the publishing coming out of Canada um, using this term, um, you know, and, and Britain, um, and that's when I was like, oh, this is a, this is interesting, a category that's like very, it seems very neat, but it also is, uh, it's also a broad brush stroke. 
um, you know, I do, I, I will say that uh, South, it, it depends on who I'm talking to, like I said. So for example, if there are people who have no idea about the history um, of, you know, what it means for me to be, you know, Guyanese, in, of Guyanese heritage, I'll say that I am South Asian because it's, I don't want to keep having that conversation of my history and migration from the 1800s because when people ask me, where are you from? It's just, it's so much that I can, it's so, I, it's easier to just be like, I'm South Asian because if people aren't going to hear you anyway, depending on the context. Um, and so for me, I, it's a very defeatist attitude, I know. Um, but you know, if it's, if it's, uh, you know, folks who are uh, brown themselves and uh, they're like, you know, what are you or what terms do you use to identify yourself? Then I'd be like, oh yeah, I am, um, I'm Guyanese, I'm Indo-Guyanese. Um, I would say that Desi is a word that, <clears throat> it's also one of those words that can be used for um, solidarity work here in the United States. And I think that like, it's a broad category and I don't, uh, ever want to erase this Guyanese-ness, whatever that means. And for me, that means the Guyana that is Orlando, that is my mom's living room. Uh, and uh, India and Indian, you see, going back to um, what other folks said about like how their own grandparents would have referred to themselves. Like my grandmother would say that she's Hindustani, um, you know, much like uh, 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 Sila, I believe, said. Um, and so that was that's a word that's like also a hard thing to, to use uh, based on how it centers like uh, a kind of corruption of the Indus River, but also now in, 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 in this iteration of Hindu nationalism, um, you know, all, has a very punching power to it. So that's a hard thing to, 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 to use as well. But I do think that my, it's my parents' generation who will say that they're East Indian. Um, and to me, uh, that term East Indian represents an otherness in a, in a, in a proximity to a Guyanese national identity that is never fully attained because of that other distinctive marker, the East Indianness. Um, you know, and I think that like uh, none of my answers for using these these, these identity markers are uh, very well fleshed out in that. I think my identity is something, and especially in re relating my ethnic identity and my queer identity and all of this, the language, the language around it changes depending on where I am, who I'm talking to. So, you know, um, I use the word kuli in my family, kuli, we say kuli, uh, in my family. It's when my sister and I will be like, oh, look at this person. And, you know, the person will be named something that could be recognizably Guyanese, right? And so we would be like, oh, is this person Desi or Kuli? Um, and so that would be for us kind of, are they are they like us that they belong to the, the South Asian Indian labor diaspora? Or are they, you know, more recent immigrants from the South Asian continent? Um, and I think that that's something that we use to talk about ourselves, like a, a, very, a very innate kind of action where the word coolie has that history behind it of course it's um, derogatory when it's used from the outside it's a word that I use personally to identify myself um, and then you know uh, like I'm saying you know language is changing identities are changing um, Orion Persadi uh, wrote this article me just realized as a coolie by Indo-Caribbean masculinities chutney uh, genealogies and coolie subjectivities that I really, really love how 
um, he uses Kuli, but he spells it with a Q in order to, to, to foreground a queerness that exists in, um, you know, Indo-Caribbean identity. And I think that that's like a, 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 a supreme example of difference, right? Like something that you'll you'll understand when you see it written down, although in, in when it's spoken, you know, it, it, it it's a shibboleth or like a secret for the speaker. Uh, and I really, I really love that, uh, that move. Um, and I think that, like I said, the ways that we talk about our histories are changing from, you know, day to day. Uh, and so it would make sense for our, our identities to not be fixed, but fluid as we are, as we move through the world. Thank you so much, Rajiv. Yes, it's true that for sure, identities are evolving, um, language is evolving, but I guess that comes with how we have to confront or negotiate different parts of our identities in different contexts. And I love how we are all in, in this space right now and we can relate to different things that we're saying and and um, as, as we understand different parts of our identity or different parts of our history also realize what words seem the most fitting but it, it's it's so specific to um individual contexts 